Hey, I'm Mike Kramer. I, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I uh, forgot to mention this in uh, the other times, but uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, of all places. Which is great. I went to a place called Green Hills High School. Some of you have heard of it. Some of you went there, which is beautiful. And some of you were instrumental in my coming to know the Lord. John Chambers, thank you. Um, absolutely wonderful. Um, hey, great to be together. We're going to spend time here talking about proclaiming Christ in the 21st century. Um, I don't know if there's anything profound about that. It's, it's the 21st century. You can't actually do it in any other century right now. This is the only century that you get to do it in. So, no, but we will talk about some of the uniqueness of you know, kids these days, which interestingly, if you think about it, it's really kind of you as well because you've grown up really in the 21st century. So hopefully this is helpful and insightful for us individually as well as with our ministry um, and what we're doing. So, um, hey, here we go really quick. I want to get us kind of warmed up here, freshened up in the room, get a little energy going. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cross my hands like this, okay? And when my hands cross, we're going to, you guys are going to clap. You guys think you can do that to get your hands up? It's kind of like, instead of getting you up to do jumping jacks, you know, we're just gonna do, it's like mini jumping jacks, all right? So we're going to go to the right. You guys ready? Here we go. Let's see. You have to wait till they cross. You have to wait till they cross. You guys, we'll try it again. Here we go. Yeah, make it easy. There we go. That wasn't, that wasn't even close that time. Okay, so I want to figure out who it is in the room that's messing up. we do that. It's either the guys or the ladies. We're going to find out. Sound good? Okay, so guys, you ready? Here we go. Guys, get your hands up. We're going to get it right here. <laughs> All right, we're going to try it. Here we go. There you go. Oh, oh, okay, so it could be the guys. Let's see if it's the ladies. Are you guys ready? Here we go. Ladies, let's go. Very good. It's the guys. It's clearly the guys. The problem, so... Um, hope you guys have had a good morning. We're going to have fun talking about, you know, how do we proclaim this great message? Uh, we're going to start in Mark chapter 12, and you want to turn there. Um, passage that I have really just come to love. And I'm going to present this a little bit in, in a club talk way, but then also kind of, you know, as with regard to the seminar, because I want it to fit the, um, the audience that we're doing here. What's interesting is this. You guys know Jesus, had, uh, there, he had troubles with certain groups of people. Who were some of the groups of people that he had trouble with? The Pharisees, great. Okay, who else? That was the easy one. Clayton, great, good job just jumping on that one right away, okay? What are some of the other ones? You had trouble with? Just pick any other group you can pick up. disciples? Yeah, the disciples were kind of knuckleheads at times, weren't they? I mean, he really kind of pushed them, and yeah, at one point, you know, I think one of his strongest statements was to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That was, that's pretty strong, okay? So you have the Pharisees. Let's talk about some other major groups that were kind of in contention and power at that time. Anybody know? Sadducees. The Sadducees as well. Here's a fun and free one for you to understand a little bit of the difference on those, okay? The Sadducees were primarily in charge of the temple and were in charge of sacrifices. Like that was primarily kind of their arena. The Pharisees were primarily in charge of teaching the law and their domain was not the temple, it was the synagogues. So in many ways, and there were synagogues in all the villages. So in many ways, the Pharisees were much like the Young Life leaders, in the sense that they were with the people. So you can see the difference here. The, uh, the, the Pharisees had troubles with Jesus because of some of what was going on and 
how they felt like they were losing power. The Sadducees were having trouble with, with Jesus. You know, Jesus talking about, we're going to tear down this temple. and You know, all this kind of stuff. That he was rocking the boat, okay? There's another group of folks that also had, that had troubles with them. A group called the Herodians. You ever hear of the Herodians? Yeah? Who were the Herodians? Anybody know? Sounds like? Herod, right? So Herod was kind of the king, the local king. They had these different kingdoms and fiefdoms and all this kind of stuff. So the local kingdom that was called, the, the Herod was not technically his name. It was like, I mean, it was the name of what they called the kings. So it was the Herods and the Herodians were the ones that were in favor of the Herods being in power. And then you have Rome. So Rome's in charge. Then you have the Herods underneath that are kind of an extension of Rome in some ways. And they would have been in favor of Rome and their power. Even though they would have preferred to not have Rome around, they were kind of, you know, a little closer, okay? So you have Rome, you have the Herods, the Herodians, and then you have the Sadducees kind of in this arena. So if it's Rome, Herodians, Sadducees, Pharisees. Did the Pharisees like the Romans? No, they didn't like the Romans. They wanted the Romans gone, right? Because they were much more with the people and all the way over here were the zealots. The zealots were the ones that wanted to have a war with Rome and kick them out. So all these different political factions and power and uh, religious kind of entities, they're in this story. So what happens is this, is Jesus is constantly having conflict with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all through his time. And it says this in chapter 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against him. This was the parable that just happened. We won't talk about the parable that just happened. But out of that parable, they felt very convicted. They knew that he was speaking against them. So they decide that they want to. Um, it says, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left and went their way. So this other d- dynamic of the crowd and, you know, we love it. I hope whenever you talk about Jesus, you talk about the crowd. Crowds love to be around Jesus. And the crowds that love to be around Jesus were like you and I. You know, one of my favorite names for Jesus is friend of sinners. And I think some people call him a friend of sinners as a derogatory thing, like the Pharisees. He's a friend of sinners. I bet he wore it like a badge of honor. I'm a friend of sinners. I love that about Jesus. He loved to hang out with people like, like you and me, right? And... Uh, the story goes on, it says this, Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So it's interesting, some of these rulers got together and they sent the Herodians and the Pharisees. Did they like each other? No. The Herodians and the Pharisees didn't like each other. They didn't get along. It's interesting though, Jesus is always bringing people together, you know? Jesus brings together, here's the Herodians, the Pharisees decide to come together to get Jesus. They want to catch him in his words. Now you guys know this story here a little bit. You know, the story kind of goes along, it's about paying taxes to Caesar, right? And Jesus has this great response, well give to Caesar what's Caesar, give to God what's God's. And, you know, it's often talked about, this parable, or this, this story is often talked about that make sure you pay your taxes, be a good citizen, pay your tithe, you know, be a good church member. And it's talked about with regard to finances. And then at the very end of the story, it says this, and they were amazed at him. Think about it for a second. If this story is about paying your taxes and paying your tithe, like that's informative, right? Is it amazing? 
it, it, it's not really that amazing. It's, it's actually kind of like, you know, don't forget to pay your phone bill, and well, don't forget to pay your electric <coughs> bill, and don't forget to pay your rent, and right? I would suggest that's maybe not what this story's about. This story's often talked about that way, but is it possible that this story has a greater meaning in it? What's interesting is Jesus, as he's walking around, you know, and he's with the disciples and all this, he's proclaiming that he is God. He's the Son of God. Who does Caesar think that he is? Caesar thinks that he is God, right? And now here's Jesus that's telling people he is God. A little bit higher tension than pay your taxes, pay your time. There's this between, is it Jesus as God, is it Caesar as God? Who's in charge? Whose word is going to be the word that counts? So it's kind of this higher level. If they can get Jesus to say the wrong thing, then Caesar's going to be ticked, and Caesar's going to get rid of Jesus. So it's a trap that they're setting up. And you guys know this. you probably looked at this before. Uh, it says, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, do you think they really believe that? No, you're shaking your head no. What, what, why do you, what makes you think they don't believe that? Because if they did, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. That's right. If they did, they wouldn't actually be doing what they're doing. They'd be following him and listening to him and obeying him, right? So they don't really believe this. They're just setting them up. They're buttering them up for the question. Here comes the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax? Or your version might say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Okay, so let's talk about what's the trap. If he says pay taxes to Caesar, what happens? He is acknowledging that Caesar's God. Thank you, yes. And all of a sudden, he now is saying that he's not God. Wow. I don't think he's going to compromise on that one. Right? What else happens if he says that? What happens to all this crowd that's following him? This, by the way, they don't really like Rome. They want Rome gone. And he says, oh, pay your taxes. Right? He's going to probably lose some of their following. Right? So there's a trap there. What if he goes the other way and he says, no, pay your taxes. I'm sorry, don't pay your taxes. Now he's in trouble with Rome, right? It's a lose-lose, right? He loses either way. So it's interesting what happens here. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And you know, I love that about Jesus. Like he sees through all the junk. He sees through it. And you know what's great about that for us? Is he sees through kind of our facade. He sees through what we put up as kind of a projection of who we want to be. And the beauty is he sees who we really are. I love this about Jesus. He sees into the depth of who we are, and he knows us. And that's abundantly good. He sees our hurts. He sees our pains. He sees our hopes and our aspirations. He sees all of that. And as Jeff said last night, in that he moves toward us, not away from us. It's beautiful who Jesus is. So Jesus says here that he knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So what I have here is an image of a coin. This is a, a Roman coin. This is possibly what the coin actually looked like in this scenario. And what do you notice about the coin? Because G Jesus says, bring me a coin. And then he says, let's look at it. What do you see in the coin? What do you notice? Pretty obvious. 
What's that? Caesar. Caesar. Okay, you got Caesar on it. What else is on there? There's an inscription around the edges, right? So what's interesting is Jesus asks for the coin, okay, and then he asks a question, and then he makes this statement. Why didn't he just make the statement? And he could have just answered their question without saying, give me a coin. He could have just said, well, pay your taxes, you know, and, you know, give your money to the church, if that's what he meant. I'm going to suggest that's not what he meant by nature of the fact that he actually asked to see a coin. Because he could have answered that question without seeing the coin. So he says, give me, a, give me a coin. And then he holds it up and he says, I have a quarter here. Whose image is this? And whose inscription is on this coin? And their answer is Caesar's. Right? And on this one here, we have George Washington. And around the outside, it says United States of America. Right? So I have this coin here. Who, who, who owns this coin? Who does it belong to? America. Correct answer. Belongs to the United States of America. Who possesses it right now? I do. I possess it. It does not belong to me. Right? Which is why if I were to destroy this, it's actually a crime to destroy this. Now, I'm probably not going to get into trouble. All of a sudden, you're thinking, all those pennies I put on the railroad tracks, you know? <laughs> like, that's actually a crime to destroy money. I don't think you do that. But the reason is this. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs... You know, the ownership is the United States. How do we know that this belongs to the United States of America? Because it says it on it. And it has a picture. We chose to put the picture of George Washington on this, right? So what's interesting is Jesus says, well, let me see the coin. He sees the coin. Now, who's, who's the images on this? Who's inscription? Ah, Caesar's. And I wonder, we don't know, but I wonder if it went down like this. He goes, eh. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And then he looks deeply into their hearts. And as he's looking into their hearts, all of a sudden, Genesis 1 and 2 starts to come alive in their minds. And he says, and give to God what's God's. What determined the ownership of the coin? The image. The inscription. Whose image is on you? Whose inscription is written on your heart? This has nothing to do with paying taxes. It has nothing to do with paying time. It has to do with identity. It has to do with ownership. It has to do with recognizing that we were created. It has to do with responding and stepping into that identity of who we are. And at the end it says, and they were amazed. I would suggest to you, that's amazing right there, isn't it? Let's have fun. What did I just do? What are all the things I just did? What's that? Mm-hmm. What are all the things I just did? Huh? Look at that, I have another one. <laughs> I had an object. It's called an object lesson. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. An object. What's imp- what, why is it significant to have an object, if, 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 if possible? People want visuals. People like visuals. Why is a visual better than... I, I could have talked about a coin. I didn't have to show you that, right? I could have just talked about it. Why is it good to have an actual coin? 
understand that, so when they can see it, they can understand it. Absolutely. Absolutely. How many of you, I wonder, every time you pull a quarter out of your pocket, the rest of your life will now think about this and your identity in Christ? There's a chance you will. I've just created something in your life that just might remind you of how much God loves you with something that could be in your pocket. Probably not, because nobody cares money anymore. But you get the point, right? Okay. What's your name in the middle? Sarah. Sarah, you caught the coin, right? You have the coin. Hopefully it reminds you, right, of how God views you and where your true identity is. Okay, what else did I do? I ask questions. Why is that important? Um, it makes us actually involved. It makes me involved, and I'm listening. Great. What else did I do? You kind of like unravel it with us and say, "This is what I'm going to teach you." Right. I didn't tell you and then teach it to you. Right. We kind of unfolded <clears throat> it together. Now, this is actually a unique, a unique passage, and the way I chose to do this one. I actually jumped to the end because in this case, the end where it says, and they were amazed, if you notice the way I did it first, I kind of downplayed it like that's not, I I almost used that to downplay it so I could then set up the actual significant part, right? So typically you wouldn't jump to the end. I chose to in this one for that reason, to do that. But yeah, exactly right. We kind of went a little bit at a time. Okay, what else? Background. Good. Didn't want to assume that people knew everything. A little bit of background to have fun with it. Great. What else? Yeah. Kind of going back and forth a little bit, right? Drawing people along. I asked questions. I asked you to imagine things. I invited you to consider and to use your own imagination to put yourself there, to consider what it would be like. Okay. Here's an interesting statement here. This is by Jim Rayburn. Would somebody read this? Who'd be willing, bold enough to read this nice and loud for us? Fantastic. Your name? Scott. All right, Scott, go for it, bud. Jesus Christ is the strongest, grandest, most attractive personality ever to grace the earth. The careless messenger with the wrong method can reduce all the magnificence to the level of boredom. It is a crime to bore anyone with the gospel. If you cannot do that, then you better get to know the one that you were talking about a whole lot. Great. Thank you. Appreciate it. You know, if you can't not do that, it's kind of this double negative thing. If, if when you talk about Jesus, it's boring, you better get to know him better. You gotta get, he's not boring. It's exciting. It's dynamic. It's life-changing. And what Rayburn says is this, you know, it's a crime to bore anyone with the gospel. This is such a great message. And if we reduce it to the level of boredom, it's a crime to bore someone with the gospel. It's a sin to bore a kid with the gospel. And you've maybe heard the phrase before, it's a sin to bore a kid, which is not the full phrase. The full phrase is with the gospel. See, I think sometimes we take the it's a sin to bore a kid and we run with that. Young life, let's go throw a pie in somebody's face. Like, no, no, it's about the gospel, folks. Because the gospel is fun and exciting and great. You have to be convinced. So as a proclaimer of Christ, if you're going to be speaking in club, 
Or if you're going to be one-on-one with a kid, declaring to them and encouraging them and inviting them into a deeper walk with Christ or to consider the truths of the faith. Ask yourself this question, am I convinced? To convince others, we must be convinced ourselves. We must have a deep walk with Christ. We speak out of our walk and experience with Christ. Our relationship with Christ is the most important thing in our proclamation. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff that will be very helpful. The most important thing is your walk with Christ. You walk with kids, you walk with Christ. We put you in front of people. If you've earned the right, you've spent time with kids, you can fumble through that message, and it's going to have a great impact. Now, that being said, if you spend time with kids and you spend time with Christ, let's put in the effort to make it great. Right? Okay, so let's go ahead and not make that an excuse for not being great at what we do. But you have to understand, if you're doing those two things, those are the major ones. And let's just have fun with the rest of it. Because the rest of it's really a lot of fun. Okay, what's interesting is this. Today's culture, kids today, are asking fundamentally a different question than those of us that are a little bit older asked when we were growing up. When we were growing up, when considering things with regard to faith, considering things with regard to life, the question we would ask is, is it right? Okay? Is it right or is it wrong? There's truth and then there's falsity or foolishness or whatever you call it, right? That was us. And you're kind of going, yeah, that was us. Today, you know what the question is? Does it work? That's the question fundamentally that kids are asking today. Not every kid. But fundamentally, our culture today is asking the question, does it work? Because our culture has grown up hearing there is no truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be. So the question isn't, is it true? It's, does it work? Now, what's interesting is St. Patrick, he was a, a missionary in Ireland, and his approach to ministry was this, that belonging, if you can create a sense of belonging amongst people, it will lead to believing. So belonging leads to correct belief. Let's do it the other way. Believing leads to belonging. So St. Patrick's principle was create a sense of belonging amongst people where they feel loved, they feel accepted, they feel safe. And out of that, over time, believing is going to happen. What's that sound like? It's young life. Believing, you have to believe these certain things to belong to our group. You have to have the right beliefs stated first, and then we'll let you in the door. What does that sound like? Now, we are the church, right? Okay, so we can be critical, but also, you know, we have to own this. If we're not careful, this is kind of the current American church. You have to believe these certain things, or you don't belong. So you have kids who could care less about right or wrong. And they're asking the question, does it work? And this idea of if you believe the right thing, then you're in, they have no interest. They feel on the outside. They feel judged, right? And some of you are going, yeah, that's me because I'm a 21st century kid. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's just where we're growing up. I would suggest St. Patrick had it right. Create a sense of belonging, and out of that develops belief and understanding. So what we're going to talk about today here is how do we engage the crowd? How do we develop and help people to learn? 
How do we help with, how do we create what we do, our proclamation to stick? Okay? So, something to help us here is what I call the truth-telling continuum. And on the truth-telling continuum, we're going to have a, a, you know, club kid in the middle. So here's a little Johnny club kid in the middle. And what I want to do is I want him to understand the truth. Here's what's interesting. I can push him one of two ways. Both will push him to the truth. And here's, what, here's the way that works. One is that I confront. So that I want to confront certain things about his life, her life. I want to confront certain things about the, what, what kids believe. I want to debunk some of the stuff that they think life's about. The other is to confirm. I want to talk about the hopes, the aspirations, everything that they're made for over on this side. So what that looks like a little bit is this. is This is exposing the fallacy of wrong thinking. Exposing the fallacy of wrong thinking, inadequate belief. In other words, showing the logical conclusion of you believing that life is found in football is going to leave you empty and wanting more. The logical belief of you thinking that having sex is the answer to your life is going to leave you hurting and broken. Right? The logical answer of, you, of saying the answer to life is money and chasing after it. Is going to leave you in a place where you may have a lot of wealth, but you're going to be incredibly lonely and empty and broken. Right? So we understand that. The other side is where we say it's fulfill the greatest aspirations and hopes of the heart. You were made for fullness and life and meaning and purpose and dignity and our identity to be found in Christ. And we lift that up that they would see that and be drawn to that truth. Are both of these truth? They both are truth, okay? Are both important? Both are important. If you think about this over here, what, what club talk did I kind of do? What, was, what is it? What was the... It's the need talk. The need talk is exposing the fallacy of all the things we chase after and how we're desperately in need of Christ, right? Over here, this club talk over here. I mean, a lot, it, all talks are a little bit of both. Person of Christ kind of talk. It's the appropriation talk, right? It's all this great stuff of what we were made for. Life in Christ. Now, here's the thing. If I'm meeting with you one-on-one, and the things we're talking about today here are not just club talks, but if we're meeting one-on-one, Starbucks, hanging out, having a conversation, and I know you, I've been spending time with you, I'm going to know whether I need to kind of confront or confirm, right? So the words that I like to use here, this one, think of it as punching, and this one is hugging, okay? So I'm either going to punch or I'm going to hug, right? Both are important at the right time, <clears throat> okay? If I'm meeting with you individually and I know you, I kind of know when to punch you a little bit, right? And I also kind of know when I need to hug you a little bit. How do you do that when you're in a club speaking in front of a crowd of 50 kids, 100 kids, 150 kids, 20 kids, whatever it is? How do you know which one to do? Because kids in the room, some need to be punched and some need to be hugged. Some really need to be punched. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm saying? How, how do you know? How do you do it? Do you just do this one over here? Of course not. Here's how it works. Here's the trick. You punch yourself and you hug the crowd. So I punch myself. Think about it. A need talk. It's the perfect place to begin to tell part of my testimony. The things that I chased after debunk the, the fallacy of my wrong thinking. And in doing that, I've earned the right with these folks. I'm inviting them to consider the fallacy of their wrong thinking. 
So I start this by really talking about a little bit of my story and the things I chased and how it didn't work out and how I began to realize that it was Jesus that was the one that came to fulfill all of these things. So I punched myself and I hugged the crowd because the crowd is hurting and broken and desperately needs to be hugged. But they need to also have the truth pushed in both directions on this one. Okay? So it's kind of a fun one, this idea of the truth-telling continuum. Okay, the next one I have here is what I call the retention of learning styles over time. Over time, you will only remember 10% of what I even say here. At best, right? At best, you'll you'll only remember 10% of it. Guess what? I know that. I know that's the case. So I have already been doing things in the midst of our time here, right, that is more than you just hearing what are some of those things? Visuals, a coin, an object lesson, a question, asking you to imagine something. If it's just me talking, it's here, it's 10%. Seeing is 30%. Doing is 60%. People will remember and retain 60% of what they learn by doing, what they learn by being active. So what we have is called the learning continuum. And on the learning continuum, we got you know, a little Johnny uh, Club kid in the middle here. And in any environment, we need to think about, is my audience, and am I leading this in a way that's a passive, is it passive or active? I want people to be active. I want you to be active in this right now. The format appears to be very passive, right? So you think about a club and you're speaking to kids. It's passive in the sense that they're sitting. It's a lecture format. But think about that setting and those kids sitting there. I've just made you active in my talk because I've invited you to consider thinking about what, they, what it looks like. So I am trying to make this an active experience for you even though the format is the worst format possible for learning, the lecture. Right? You want kids to remember what you say? Help to make things active, not passive. Over here, people are unengaged. They're apathetic. What you're talking about feels irrelevant. Over here, you're helping people to be involved, to have ownership, that there's buy-in, that they care about where you're going. So what we're going to talk about here is what's called transformative learning. Transformative learning is saying, how do I do more than just give you information? Because if this seminar right here was just about information, I could put it all on a piece of paper and hand it to you. If you have it, you're good to go. But I believe that what we're doing here is more than just the information. It's not any less than the information. Just like in club, the information you're going to proclaim and and talk about is important. It's no less than that, but can you make it more than that? Okay, so informative learning versus transformational learning, transformative learning. We want to have transformative learning with people. And to do that, you have to realize that you're talking, in, with every individual you're talking to, you're talking to three parts of them. You're talking to them intellectually, the facts, the matters, what you say, the actual words, okay? You're speaking to their emotions. When I was doing the Mark 12, talking about the coin, and I flipped the coin, and then I paused. Do you remember what that felt like? There was a sense of anticipation. I wonder where this is going. 
And then I said that Jesus probably looked right into their eyes, right into the depths of their soul. Do you remember what you felt? I know you felt something. What'd you feel? He's looking into the depths of your soul. And I mentioned Genesis. Did you immediately jump to the image of God? You figured it out before I said it. I did it all on purpose, in that order. I didn't just make it up. I intentionally did every single one of those things so you would discover it. So when I said that you're the image of God, you're like, I know. I know. And you'll remember that because you were active in that the whole way through. I'm trying to speak to the intellectual part, the facts, the truth, it matters. The emotion, I want to engage your emotion. And I want it to be experiential because if it's experiential, you're going to carry it with you. So there's two communication styles I want to talk about. One's called deductive, another's called inductive. These are really key terms to understand. They're going to be things that you're going to hopefully carry with you for a while, and you will use these as a lens to how you view communication going forward. Think about a club talk or different kinds of things, okay? Have you ever taken a speech class, high school, college, okay? What do they say is the best way to give a talk? John and I, we were in a speech class together. Remember that at UC? Yeah. Oh, boy. I remember I had, an, I, had a, I had a persuasive speech to make. as the Zoom shoe. I sold the Zoom shoe. And it had a, it, had, it was, yeah. It was, it was, a, it was uh, football cleats with, a, with a, a French horn attached to the back. It was like a rocket shoe. Anyway. Nobody bought it. <laughs> okay, but you're in a speech class. Okay, they say, what's the best kind of speech to give? How, how, how does it go? At the beginning, you do what? Tell them what you're going to tell them. And then what do you do? Then you tell them, and at the end, you tell them what you told them. It is the worst kind of talk to give when you're speaking to disinterested kids. It's a great kind of talk in a different setting. Okay? But when you're speaking to a disinterested crowd, or you're speaking to a crowd that you really want to draw along, it's the worst way. Here's why. Think about it. At the beginning, tonight, I'm going to tell you guys about sin. And how we're all condemned. And the scripture says that we're going to hell. Now, let me explain that to you. What have I done right out of the gate? What, what's happened? What's that? They're tuned out. Why? This sounds horrible. It sounds boring, right? Okay. I've given them the option at the beginning of my talk to decide whether or not they want to listen. And a disinterested crowd will often choose to stay disinterested. Okay, so then I step in and I give all my points on it. You know, the, the, the bulk of the talk. Now what I'm doing is I'm taking a crowd that I've positioned in a way that it's contentious a little bit. And now I'm going through my talk and I'm proving my point, right? In other words, I'm proving that I'm right and implied in that is what? That they're wrong and that they will be right if they agree with me. And then at the end, I'm reminding them that, of course, I'm right. <laughs> you see it? How often do we do our talks like that where we set up this contention between ourselves and the crowd? As opposed to, oh, by the way, that's deductive. Deductive is I tell you what I'm going to tell you, I then tell you, and then I tell you what I told you. Inductive is this. 
I draw you in. You become captured in a story, and you see yourself in this story. And all of a sudden, it seamlessly kind of becomes this larger story about life. And I'm interested because you're speaking about things that matter to me. You're speaking about things that are relevant to me. And as the story progresses, at the end, I arrive at a conclusion before you actually state it. That's inductive. You get the crowd to arrive at something before it's actually stated. So who then owns the conclusion? They do. So how do we do this? What we're trying to create is what's called the aha experience. I want the crowd to go, I get it. Aha. It all comes together. And then when I state the conclusion at the end, it only confirms what they've already discovered. So the inductive style. We'll go through a couple of these things here that will help you to understand. The first is narrative. Narrative is just the classic kind of you know, club talk. You're using a narrative, a story about Jesus. Okay, an example here of a great one would be in Mark chapter 4. Okay, Jesus calms the storm. Great club talk, right? So a narrative is just walking through the story, making it inductive. Now, here's the thing. Just because you do a narrative doesn't mean you're doing it inductively. Let me give you an example. You ready? So here's my club talk. So I tell some funny story about, you know, I'm in the Everglades. We get, there's a storm comes through. It's a hurricane. And it's a, whatever. Okay, so in, in the water. Um, it says, that day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So what's going on in this story is Jesus is teaching this crowd. And after a long day, he says to his disciples, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. And he gets in the boat. And as they're in the boat, this storm builds. Okay, what have I done? Is that a good club talk, bad club talk? Why? You just read it and then you're just like surmising and you're not giving them the option to like. I, I read the whole story, so you know how it ends. Yeah. And then I'm going back and commenting on it. Well, you already know the ending. Yeah. So then they're disengaged. So if you're if you're a good storyteller, do you or let's say you're 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 um, making a movie, do you put the ending of the movie at the beginning? No. How often in our club talks do we give away the ending at the beginning? Don't do it. It's bad storytelling. Jesus was a great storyteller. He didn't do it that way. Think of it this way. What if we did this? What if the story went like this? The day, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake, leaving the crowd behind. I love this about you. This is one of my favorite parts, by the way. That the crowd, there were always crowds around him. Did you know that? I mean, I don't know what your image of Jesus is. But there were always crowds around. They loved being with Jesus. And as I mentioned before, you know, they called him friend of sinners. People like you and me, we would have loved to have been around him. Okay, here it says, 
It says they took him along just as he was in the boat. He was tired. It's been a long day. Can you imagine that? All day he's teaching. They finally get in the boat, and he's tired. It says there were also other boats with him. We're going to come back to that in a minute. That's kind of a neat little fact. But it tells us this didn't just happen in some obscure place with nobody else witnessing. There were boats all over the lake when this happens. Listen to what happens. It says a furious squall came up. I don't know if you know what a squall is. But a squall, it's like a big storm. And the way that this lake was, it was kind of in a low area. and There were mountains around it. And the weather patterns, when it came across and over the mountains, it would come down on the lake and it would stir up the lake really quickly, unexpectedly. So here are the disciples and Jesus out in this boat and this furious squall came up. It's kind of fun, isn't it? Isn't that exciting? What's the difference? I'm making it come alive as we go. I'm not reading the story and then going back. Reading the story and then going back would be deductive. Inductive is I make it come alive as we go along so that the crowd sees themselves, the audience sees themselves in the story. As the story builds, my hope is that the people listening, they would begin to cheer for who? To come through. Jesus, right? That they see themselves in the story and they find themselves cheering, oh, I hope Jesus comes through. I hope he comes through. here's, Here's what's interesting. If they're hoping that Jesus comes through here, where are they also beginning to appropriate this idea of Jesus coming through in their lives? So if I can get them to engage and experience the story, what I'm doing is I'm inviting them into let their own story intersect with this story and that they begin to see the truth of God's story in their life. Let me give you a couple others. That's a narrative. Don't read the whole story and go back and comment. Make it come alive. Have fun. In any narrative, there's plot, there's characters, there's climax, there's tension. Build those. Let those be there. Don't race ahead. Here's a quick note for you. The place that most talks will fall apart when you're doing a narrative, where it all of a sudden becomes deductive, is in the transition. You open with some great story, you know, about whatever, I'm in the Everglades, and there's, you know, great... You know, storm and we're swamped and all this. And let me tell you a story about Jesus who's in the exact same situation and how he calms the storm. And then you go on, oh, I just told the whole story. Right? Okay, here we go. Another, another uh, inductive style. And all of these are styles you can use in your talk. Another one is called enumeration. That I start by just enumerating the same idea over and over and over again. And I slowly build by kind of coming around the same big idea. And at the end, I state my big idea. I don't start with the big idea and then support it and tell you how I'm right. I invite you to consider story and ideas and illustrations that you buy into that by the end you go, I'll buy in on that. Can you think of a club talk that's like that? It's typically an appropriation talk. I'm giving you all kinds of ideas of what it looks like to begin to follow Christ and why you should follow Christ and what it looks like you know, to give your life to Christ. You know, we're talking about the car and the car keys and we're talking about the dresser and, the, and all these different things. And at the end I'm saying, and for you, what is it for you? Are you willing to give your life to Christ, right? That's the big idea. But I'm going to get there with all these illustrations that begin to build towards this idea rather than starting with the idea and let me convince you of why you should do it. Okay, um, here's another one. It's kind of like that, but the other direction. It's called elimination. 
I kind of start and I'm just knocking all the table legs off of a table. I'm slowly knocking them all off until there's only one left. Well, that one's in the middle. <laughs> the ones that fall over. Okay? But if you think about that, I'm slowly knocking things down until there's only one thing left. Okay, what club talk is that? Slowly knocking things down. What is it? It's the need talk. I'm slowly knocking things out that don't work so they would realize at the end, it's Jesus. That's the answer. That's what I've been looking for my whole life. Oh my gosh, I know it. That's it. And that they would discover that and realize that by the end of the talk. And that they've discovered that. And then I state it at the end. Okay? Problem solving is another one. You kind of pose a problem and explore different ways to solve the problem. In some ways, that's kind of the crosstalk. Is there's this problem that's been presented, and now we're working to resolve that problem. The crosstalk, by the way, is one that typically is the hardest to do inductively. And here, or that you've probably not seen it inductively as many times. Here's why. How do most crosstalks start when people start off? Tonight? What is it? What do people say? We're going to talk about the cross. Yeah, tonight we're going to talk about the cross, right? Okay, what else? How, how are the ways we do it? Okay, tonight we're talking about something really heavy and deep, right? You talk about God's news. Tonight we're talking about some great news. Tonight we're talking about how God came to rescue us, right? Now, are all those things true? Sure they are. But if I start off the crosstalk by saying tonight, I get, I'm so excited to share it. I have been just jumping out of my skin, so excited for tonight to be able to share this with you. It's the greatest news. Tonight I get to share with you about how God rescues us from our sin. What have I just done? I just gave the whole talk. <laughs> All the emotion of the talk is gone. I still have the talk to give. I'll give you the information. But I've blown all the story and emotion out of it. Right? I have a good friend of mine who I was coaching. He was speaking at Rockbridge on a fall weekend. And uh, he uh, asked me for his feedback after his crosstalk. And so his crosstalk was like this. He, he started off with this story that he was in the ocean as a kid swimming. And he got caught in this riptide. It was phenomenal. Great story. He had given a great little recap of sin. Okay? And then he starts talking about this being caught in this riptide. And he's connected to the fact that we're stuck and there's nothing we can do. And he says, I look up and on the shore I see my dad. And there's nothing I can do. And he, like the crowd's right there. He says, my dad rises up. And he gets, and he comes running into the water. And he comes and he reaches in and he pulls me right out of the water and he rescues me that's a good story right and he says and tonight i get to tell you about how jesus does that for us out of the back going no 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 you just gave the whole thing away so i told him afterwards great right up to the point where your dad does something tell the story all the way up to there and i'm stuck and i'm in this riptide and i'm thinking is there any chance and i look on shore and i see my dad and I realize he's my only hope. I don't know if you guys know it, but at the end of Jesus' life, those crowds turned against him. And as those crowds turned against him, he ends up getting arrested. And we've been talking all along that Jesus is God in the flesh, right? And if he's really God in the flesh, I want you to ask this question as we go through. Why does Jesus allow this to happen? You see the difference there? I didn't let the story continue. I wrapped it right into Jesus. So now all of a sudden, Jesus is right in the middle of this. But, we, but as a listener, you're not sure where it's going yet. 
And in the crosstalk, what I'll do often, all the way through, I will ask some form of this question. Why does Jesus allow this to continue? Is it possible that there's something greater going on? I wonder if Jesus is doing something on a more cosmic level here. Is it possible that this might have something to do with our sin? Now, is that me actually wonder? I, I know the answer, okay? But what I'm trying to do is suggest that so the crowd begins to think that. I wonder what it is. One of my favorite parts of the crosstalk is with Barabbas. You have Barabbas right there. He's getting ready to be released, the whole deal, okay? And at the end, what I love to do, I won't say that Jesus took his place. That's letting the cat out of the bag a little bit, right? What I'll say is this. I wonder, I wonder if Barabbas, if he's maybe the first person that really understands what's going on. And I'll just continue. What have I just done with the crowd? What is the crowd hopefully thinking at that point? They're thinking, I, I wonder what Barabbas knew, right? I, I want to know what Barabbas knows. And I've caused them to be active. They're leaning in. Hopefully the crowd, I want to know, what is it that Barabbas knew? And then you continue on. And you get to the point where he's on the cross and he's saying his last words. And he says, it is finished, right? What is finished? And this is where I told my friend, that's where you bring your dad into the story. It's finished. What's finished? Our sin, he's taken it. Folks, when I was caught in the riptide, my dad rose up and he ran into the water. He's the only one that could. He ran in and he reached out and he grabbed me and he pulled me out. That's what Jesus is doing here with us, with our sin. That's what he's done for us. It is finished. Doesn't that land a lot better? So I use that as an example to help you see. Sometimes a story might be good to stop it and finish it later. To keep it inductive moving along. Okay? Um, hey, last little bit here. We'll kind of keep moving through. Um, effect to cause. Did we talk about that one? That's sin. Hey, here's the effect. We see, if we see the effect. What's the cause? What, what could have caused this? That's inductive to walk into that. As opposed to just stating things. Create a sense of wonder in your talk. Okay? Uh, these next two I'm going to skip. These are just a uh, great example. It's out of a book called uh, Inductive Preaching. And it basically is saying this. What it's basically saying is start with the specific. Go to the big principle. Don't do it the other way. Don't start with the big principle and the truth and then try to support it. Start with stories that will build to the big principle. Make sense? The last part in this we'll read says this. Such a process involves listeners. I want to involve the listener. I don't want to just speak to them. I want to involve them. Okay? Involves listening listeners by giving them a part in the sermon process. In other words, the sermon is not something, the, the talk is not something they're just receiving. They're engaged in thinking. Okay? It enables them to think along with or even ahead of the preacher. It involves them. Thus, the sermon itself becomes part of their experience part of their familiar inductive learning style. The conclusions that are reached, the assertions that are made at the end of the sermon, bear the mark of personal conviction, arrived at and tested by personal thought and experience. The conclusions reached are personal conclusions. Thus, the implications for the listener's life are clear, in fact, inescapable. If I can get the crowd to think and engage and process 
by the end of the talk, the conclusions they've reached that I've stamped at the end, they own. And they're inescapable at one sense. So, a couple things here that just talk about imagination and making things real. Let me give you an example here. A cup of water. Okay, imagine that you're carrying a cup of water. Okay? And you're out in this hallway. You're carrying this cup of water. And there's this huge crowd. And in the midst of it, as we're walking by, you know, I pump into you and like this water spills all over. Why did the water spill out? Don't be afraid. It's okay. Why'd the water spill out? Do you need me to go through it again? Is it not clear? Because someone hit you. Because someone bumped into you, right? That's what we typically think. The reason water spilled out is water was in the cup. What spills out of you when people bump into you? Anger? Frustration? Joy? What, what spills out of you? See, we tend to think, oh, they, it's their fault. They made me angry. No. It spilled out because it was already in there. I just gave you an illustration that you probably will remember for a long time. Thank you for going ahead and stating. I was trying to get people to state the obvious so I could then make the point. I think that might be something you'll remember for a while. Why? Because it was an illustration. It's something that's obvious. It's something you can remember. The power of illustration and how do we connect the theological truths with the power of illustration? All right, i got two minutes left. I'm not going to hit these. Sorry. Um, Club Talk outline. couple tips of the trade, okay? Tips of the trade for the end of us here. This is my Jesus Calms the Storm. It's the one I just kind of uh, did a little bit, right? In my Bible, this is what it looks like. Leaving the crowd. I underlined that behind. Here are the clues for me. A single slash in my Bible. By the way, I have a Bible that's just my speaking Bible. I mark it up with all my talks in it. A single slash means stop and comment on what you just read. Guess what I just did with my outline? It's right there. I don't have to have all this big outline of all this. Just, Just comment on what's there. Okay? Two slashes means stop. Go somewhere else for a little while. Maybe bring in another illustration or another you know, passage of Scripture. And then come back to that same place. The reason it's a double slash is when I come back to my Bible and open it, guess what's really easy to see? Double slash. I know right where I am. I'm not like, dang it, where am I in this? You know? I know exactly where I am. A little tip of the trade for you there. Okay? So single slash, double slash. I, under, under, I underline crowd and who is this? Because those are key phrases things that I want to illustrate there, okay? So that could be something that could be really helpful for you. Um, second thing that I'll say is a quick tip of the trade is this. Um, if you're speaking in a place where you have like a lavalier or something like down here, not the countryman, if you're ever doing that, it could be like an area club. I know a lot of you, just in your regular club, it probably doesn't apply. But at some point, you, know, you, you never know. When you go to read your scripture, don't do this. Turn your head down and read it like this. Because the sound, the way it carries through, it gets all muffled and goofy. What you do is you hold your Bible out in front of you like this. It, to you, feels really awkward. Does it look awkward to you? No, it doesn't at all. It feels really awkward as a speaker. Hold it up in front. That way you're speaking and looking at the crowd while you're reading it, and you don't get the funny thing with the microphone, right? 
It does look funny to you, is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying it looks like you need glasses. It looks like I need glasses. That is true. I'm getting old. It is true. Okay? So, um, there's the other one. Uh, and the last tip of the trade is this. Is after you speak, something that you need to realize is when you speak a lot, your breath smells really bad at the end. Have a breath, man. Y'all have a great day. It's been great being with you. Any questions coming up, we'll talk to you, okay? Have a great day.